Hello, welcome to the edited version of Josie and Robin's Book Shambles. If you'd like to hear the full version of this conversation, then you can go to cosmicshambles.com slash bookshambles and become one of our Patreon supporters, uh, which you can do for as little as $1 an episode. That's one US dollar, and obviously it will depend on which of our economies is declining more, uh, how much that actually works out in pounds, uh, euros, etc. Hello, welcome to Book Shambles. Robin joined again by Beck Hill as guest co-host this week. Josie will be back very soon. We promise you that. Uh, their guest this week is the author, Kerry Hudson. But before we go to that, as always, uh, thank you to our Patreon supporters, extended episodes for Patreon supporters each and every week. Thank you for your continued support. It really means a lot to us. It also means we can keep making the show and doing the blog network and everything else. Your support is really invaluable, as is uh, all the purchases uh, people have made from our online shop. Uh, signed copies of Robin's book there, uh, cosmic superhero stuff, uh, prints, badges, all that sort of stuff. So check that out at cosmicshambles.com slash shop or go to patreon.com slash bookshambles for all your Patreon needs, which are our needs too, let's be honest. A reminder about some of our upcoming shows, Nine Lessons and Carols for Curious People. Back again this year, four nights at King's Place in London, plus a family matinee uh, at King's Place as well. And then two shows at the Lowry in Manchester slash Salford. Robin hosting every night. Lots of guests lined up as usual. Uh, we've announced just a few of those. Uh, Josie will be there. Beck will be there. Lucy Green, Matt Parker, Simon Singh, Ginny Smith, uh, Dan Davis, Helen Chersky. Lots, lots more as well. And we're going to be at a number of festivals coming up. We're going to be at the Cheltenham Science Festival in June with some shows. We're going to be at Blue Dot Festival with some shows. We're going to be at Latitude Festival with some shows. Uh, we're going to be at the Royal Institute with some shows as well. So go to CosmicShambles.com, go to the events page on there and you'll find out about all of those. Robin's going to be at the Hay Festival in May and then the Soho Theatre... And then on tour in November, Josie's got lots of live dates as well. You can check her Twitter and website for those dates. Beck is going to be in Edinburgh. You'll find all of that stuff on the internet by using the Cosmic Shambles website in the events page, as I've said, or just Google stuff. That also works. Anyway, this is this week's episode. We hope you enjoy it. Here is Robin and Beck and Kerry. Hello, welcome to Josie and Robin's uh, Book Shambles. Today, the part of Josie Long will be played by Beck Hill. Yes, Though, I'll try and do my best, Josie. Anyway, and we're joined by um, Kerry Hudson, whose first book has uh, the fantastic title of uh, Tony Hogan Bought Me an Ice Cream Float Before He Stole My Ma. Ridiculous um, title. <laughs> and, which I'm not entirely sure whether this is correct. When I bought this, they sent me to the romance section. Do you think that is correct? If it's a love story to special brew and street violence... That's what I thought was... uh, And I said... And it was, weirdly enough, the person in front of me in the queue in the bookshop, the book they were after, the woman said, oh, that's in the romance section. I remember thinking, well, I don't think that is. I think that's quite a brutal book. And then I asked for that, and they went, that's in the romance. And I said, I have an inkling, just from what I know of it, that this isn't... She went, you know why? It's because there's a balloon on the front. 
Oh, well. That's all it takes. Well, there we go. Yeah, my book, apparently, the, the one that I recently did, no one knows where to put it because it's about seven different things, but never is it so deep about any of those things that it actually deserves to be placed in that genre section. <laughs> Makes um, an excellent hat. Yeah. <laughs> um, Kerry's new book is, uh, is non-fiction. It's autobiographical, low-born, and uh, I just read it uh, a couple of days before we recorded this. And, I mean, basically, it is, in many ways, I suppose, a... Uh, a beautifully written but very strong attack on an enormous number of presumptions made about whatever whether whether you know whatever the correct terminology now whether it previously would have been working class it might be underclass it might be unemployed whatever it might be that the people on the margins i mean that seems to be behind this uh, at times it's very difficult to read there are moments where the things you were dealing with as a child but it seems that what I, I might be wrong, but what, what has driven you to write this is the lack of these narratives being well, they previously used to be all over popular culture. Almost every night of the week, there would be a TV documentary that would take you into the lives of the people that you didn't know, the people who were struggling in a different way. And this book seems to fulfill, you know, the, that tell us that story. Yeah, I mean, I hope so. I mean, we still have those documentaries, but they're now like, you know, Strangers or Benefit Street or The Sun telling us that a single mum spent like 2,000 quid on Christmas presents for her kids from benefits, you know. So I really wanted to undo the myth. Like what I felt was that the communities that I'd grown up in were only being represented by people who had never had any lived experience of that and who uh, sort of parachuted in with all of their preconceptions built from other media that they consumed um, and then made more media that sort of perpetuated this narrative of like moral failing and poverty. And also, to be honest, like I was just mad as fucking hell. Um, sorry, no, your son's outside, so Oh, no, it's apologies. fine. Like I okay. said, he's seen me play festivals. It's not, <laughs> oh, okay. a, it would okay, be a terrible then. lie. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was doing that the other day when I was playing up in Keswick Words by the Water, which you might have done, this nice little mm -hmm. festival. And there was an 11 year old in the front, and I only swore once, but I looked at him, I said, I know you know that word, and your mum and dad, next you know you know that word. But we're all in some ways pretending this has been a tremendous Damascene moment of using, and suddenly I saw an old man swear. You've seen that happen before. <laughs> well, anyway, so, um, well, I will not hold back on my swearing then. Um, so, yeah, I was, just, I was just mad as fucking hell, and um, also trying to understand, like, my own place. So, I come from. Uh, a range of homeless hostels and council estates and you know I'd had like nine primary schools and five high schools I left high school at 15 to work as a waitress and then suddenly like I'd published two pretty well received novels with Penguin Random House and it was all quite establishment and I was trying to understand like how you navigate through a world that isn't really your world when you also know you can't go backwards so it's kind of those two things it's examining like the treatment of of what it is like to be poor now and the narrative around that and also my own like as it turned out very very personal journey through trying to explore like who who I am now <laughs> you know mm. just a small subject very easy to tackle yeah. so. <laughs> well that was I mean my initial reaction to it was it reminded me of of Dennis Potter's work stand up Nigel Barton mm. where he one of his first plays was dealing with the fact that he had come from uh, a mining community in a working class area of the Forest of Dean and then suddenly he finds himself at Oxford University and that sense of belonging to no one that what you've done is you you've you've cut your cultural ties but you also will never be accepted by the culture that you're now you know, also part of. 
Yeah, I call it um, a hinterland, which is neither here nor there uh, mm. in the book. And it's really, for me, it's really tangible, you know. And in some ways, you build your own community, you know, and certainly I have. I've got great friends and a, a lovely sort of literary community and a queer community around me. But um, but I really felt that that sort of outsiderness even more so than usually a writer feels it, you know. I felt it every time I walked into a literary party or every time I did a festival, um, every time I did a tour in France and had to say again, I don't speak French because I left school at 15 and then I was working my arse off for the next 20 years. So um, so it was really, it was really, and what's been really gratifying actually is, so alongside Lowborn, I wrote a series of columns for The Pool magazine, now sadly defunct, but was really like a fantastic sort of feminist venue at the time and so many women contacted me saying thank god like someone is talking about this like women who had come from that background had really like sort of scaled the 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 myth of the social mobility mountain but hadn't told anyone where they come from or how they'd grown up like not even their partners you know they lived mm. in these like 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 as if being poor or being born into poverty was something shameful that mm. should be hidden you know so um so yes yeah, so, I mean it's it's been like a, a a real a real a real journey and actually a real sort of um a real test of my sanity but actually ended up being this enormously valuable thing I think it's I mean like you know Robin like it's unusual I think to come to end of a book and feel like it's literally changed your life you know and your sort of perception of who you are so well you, you start quite early on in the book you you say uh if you're born into poverty you're fucked mm -hmm. if you're a woman born into poverty you're utterly fucked <laughs> and yeah. that you know the 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 number of people that you deal with in this story who you the I mean there's a point where I should say and we can talk about this later on there are three teachers you mentioned in this who are kind of three of the heroes of the book yeah very much so but yeah. there are also a lot of teachers who like there's one school you're in I can't remember if it's the one when you're in um, Great Yarmouth where yeah, you, you talk Yarmouth. about you were seen as so much an outsider that when you do very well in something but you end up coming second the teacher actually turns to the other child and says you almost let her win <laughs> I mean man you know that, that that's what I found I was just I not found. a likeable child you know but I think it was I was I was an outsider I mean that's the thing you know like so we moved around so much so a lot of the sort of um, psychology research around um, lower socioeconomic spectrum communities says that as well as all of the sort of hardships you have, one of the very few things that you that you have as like a positive when you're trying to make your way in the world is that you have a sense of community and a sense of rootedness and a sense of belonging. Mm -hmm. But we never had that because we were a we were a really isolated single parent family and also because we moved continually. You know, the longest we ever spent anywhere was four years. But again, like we never sort of which was in in the hall where I had a great experience with my primary school but otherwise we were constantly moving so I've got this mongrel accent which is made from all the lives that I've lived before this and um you know and I looked poor which is obviously like a red rag for kids and also like we were in communities where you know their great 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 granddad went to that school you know or you know, so so basically we were in these like communities with this like really entrenched sense of like tradition and and roots and I did not belong to that anyway. So um, that definitely made everything harder. And even with teachers, I think that they sort of, they saw that and it was something that they found kind of distasteful. Well, that's what I, that sense of having nowhere to escape to. Mm. And I think it, I, I'm, you know, something we've talked about on this podcast before, which is I'm very interested in people from from my background of, of, of privilege 
still in interviews feel that they have to say that they had a struggle too that they you know that they had the struggle of and sometimes it genuinely is you know there's, there's posh actors who say I think it would have been much better if I'd been working class and they, oh. they're 30 and they're in Hollywood and they're doing yeah. all that stuff I'll give you know, them a week yeah. <laughs> Kathy Burke you know there's that wonderful thing that she wrote to Time Out once I can't I, I, I won't do it justice where Helena Bonham Carter back in the, think, the late 80s said oh well, do you know what it's much harder being posh and pretty and I think Kathy Burke wrote a letter in Riposte, which was something like, you know, fuck off. Uh, you know, Kathy <laughs> Burke, God, she's good. I love Kathy Burke. Um, but it is uh, th- that the desire for everyone to feel that they too have had a struggle seems to me to be something which erases people. You know, for, for however much I might have ever felt like an outsider, I've never been in a position. Firstly, even if I've been technically appeared to be broke when I've got my job, just after university I've never been broke in a way which means if everything disappeared I had nowhere to go to Mm. you know I could have always it literally just meant that for that week there was stuff I couldn't get and if things really got bad not that I had to turn to there was a family structure that would have allowed me to have somewhere to stay or indeed borrow money and I you know that that seems to be one of the things that this book highlights which is the difference between the general struggle of being human which everyone, which everyone has hard. some kind like, of struggle. I don't deny that. <laughs> but, but we don't, there isn't, uh, as far as I can see, the idea that there's then somehow an equality. Well, I struggle too. Mm. Well, your struggle doesn't have, you know, the, the, a level of, as you say at the beginning, you escaped hopelessness. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I think so there's a bit in the, the book where I go back to my old estate and I have my photo taken outside the old, like, sort of shitty, damp flat that I spent my time in by a photographer. And at the end, we're going back on the train to Glasgow and the photographer says... I don't think it was all that bad growing up here. And he came from like a sort of nice middle class, back, middle class background. And I was like, he was really, really nice. And he wasn't trying to be unkind or anything like that. But I was like, well, why would he say that? Except that it makes people uncomfortable to have to acknowledge that the playing field isn't level, you know, mm. because once you start to have to, thanks for checking your privilege, Robin, I appreciate yeah. it. Once you start doing that, then you have to, um, you have to like, Think about where your personal responsibility is in changing it and tackling it, not just acknowledging it, but actually looking at how you can elevate other people who don't have those same privileges, you know. Mm. Um, so a lot of, I mean, I did a, I did Oxford Literary Festival in uh, like the, one of their ridiculous high voltage halls <laughs> where, where they filmed Harry Potter's infirmary scene, I think, and the favourite, that's how posh it was, the favourite court scenes were, oh, were wow. filmed there. But, um, and someone said, you know, are you writing it for kids like you were and like women who you are now or are you writing it for middle class male readers? And I was like, middle class male readers, like as much as I'd like women like me to read this and see some of their story yeah. represented which I think is very, very rare, unfortunately. God, let it be delivered into the hands of Daily Mail readers so mm. they can even try and understand a little bit of what's going on beyond their very, very narrow vision. Mm. Well, it is going to be, or in fact, will have been, I think, by the time this goes out, Radio 4 Book of the Week as yes. well. Yes, yeah, I recorded that yesterday. So that was, Brilliant. the yeah. sound producer learned much more about me than he'd ever wished to. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Do you, I mean, that... that as you said, that that bit of returning, and and you say there were there felt like a physical, like actually not not just a sense of nausea, but something which was going to stop you. Something like there was a boulder inside you when you first tried to think. Right, I'm going to have to go back. Mm. 
and you know you you in the book you have some of the conversations you have with your partner as well about this kind of fear of um and as you went i mean what do you feel now that you've learned that you didn't realize that 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 going literally on that journey not that you know we're going to go on a journey you actually went on a journey that's why <laughs> it's it's in the book at the beginning there's a map you know there's um doing that how much has it allowed you to add an extra level of structure in your understanding of who you are like so much I could never have imagined and I will not lie like I mean a lot of the book actually became um, about me just writing about how hard it was to write the book <laughs> I promise it's much more interesting than it sounds when I describe it but you know it was it was really tough like who actually wants to spend an entire year examining their traumatic childhood and then going back to the places where those traumas occurred um, for not a lot of money knowing that actually probably it's a book that, that will be very niche <laughs> you know um, but for me it was re- like for all the re- for all the all the books I write, the reason that I write them is because I really I have something that I'm trying to understand personally, and I think it's a real privilege to be able to do that, especially if you come from a background where you're told that your voice doesn't matter, that your stories don't matter, that you have nothing to contribute. Um, so um, the journey was was this sort of really 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 hard 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 painful thing, and tiring and um, quite frightening actually a lot. Like I spent a lot of time trying to safeguard my mental health at the same time um and then but the thing was that so I like I think many people who grew up poor or have been through trauma um or have just had like a a fucking tough childhood if you don't want to use the word trauma um like carry the sense of like sort of shame about it which I think is really really common because again it's seen as this like secretive thing you have to hide like somehow you were to blame for it um and so the very act of like it is I will never write a book god god help me if I write another book more honest than this one because <laughs> mm. I don't think I've got it in me it's a it's a deeply 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 personal book um because the liberation of finally saying things that I'd thought I wasn't allowed to say because somehow I might be judged or people might think badly of me was like radical. And also, even though on a theoretical level, I knew that that it had not been my mum's fault or my father's fault or my grandparents' fault or my grand great-grandparents' fault. You know, I came from, on both sides of my family, really long lines of generational poverty and dysfunction. But actually that it was that it was a structural issue and not like a, a personal failing. There was no blame to really be attributed to anyone close by me. You know, they made hard decisions based on the hard lives that they were living at that time. Um, and so even though I understood that theoretically, going back to those communities like almost from a, an observer perspective, but having like a really good understanding of those communities too, mm. really helped me understand um, how true that was. And so, you know, like the idea that um, you're like Fred and Ginger, you do everything backwards but in heels. Yeah. It allowed me to allowed me to actually feel like quite fucking proud of everything I've done instead of like sort of shamed about it. Like, you know, actually it's kind of fucking amazing that I left school at 15 and then, you know, I get Radio 4 to allow me to put the contents of my brain down their sound waves. I think they might regret it, but thanks very much Never. anyway. So <laughs> I think it's so great that you mentioned the shame as well, though, because the people who I... Um, the people who I end up meeting who have um, uh, either similar disadvantaged backgrounds or, or sort of, uh, as you say, perhaps traumatic childhoods, um, because I work within the comedy industry, most people of who I meet who had that have since then turned it into 
um, a strength, whether it's drawing comedy from it or or spreading that, telling that story to others and that sort of thing. But it's a real strength. But it's so rare that I I forget sometimes that there are people out there who do feel such a such a shame around it because in the bubble that I work in, it, it's a it's a pro, you know it's to be proud that you've come this far, that you've achieved so much, that you know the the rags to riches style storytelling, you forget there's so many people out there who never get to do that because they're being held back by that shame and the people who are shaming them, who are making them feel bad for that. And you don't you don't think about that side of things and how you could be adding to it. Yeah. I mean, I wrote, when I was writing my columns, I wrote a column about how actually what surprised me most is that it was often my left-wing, Islington-dwelling, fair trade meat buying, uh, guardian reading pals who'd like, if we walk past someone in a tracksuit with a few tennies in a bag, would like give me a sidelong glance and slightly edge away. And I'd be like, I don't know why you're looking at me. Like I'm with that person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and actually like we have to, we have to be realistic about it. One of the things that I decided to completely stop doing was um, allowing people to be classist in my presence. Yeah. Well, it's the punchline, isn't it? Turning, like turning it into an easy punchline because it's technically, it's not a, uh, it's not a, um, it doesn't apply to race or gender or anything that comes into play, but but anyone can be, can you know, come up from nothing, and so therefore it's almost seen as fair game to to punch down yeah. to that. Like yeah, I still totally, hear yeah. it being made fun of in a way that you wouldn't accept if you swapped um, saying that someone is poor if you swapped that for saying someone is uh, um, a woman or black or whatever. If you if you change that terminology around, everyone would go, well, that's terrible. You can't say that. Yeah, yeah. I won't say where, but I went to uh, an, another... In fact, no, I've got to be very careful. I met someone uh, a few days ago who was like quite well-to-do and in the media business, and he was older. He's an older man. He'd gone to Oxford. And he said... And I was explaining about what the book was about. And he said, well, you know, it's quite interesting. What happened to you? Because you come from that background, but you seem to read well enough and write well enough. And I was like... We do from my background. We do read and write. It's quite amazing. They let us out the pits sometimes to go to the library. Um, but there's that that sort of that that very very casual sort of um, that casual sort of shaming and those casual perceptions that again are shaped by sort of what the media puts out there, which is again like a, a very very narrow interpretation um, of. Um, of what it means to be poor, but also not a nuanced one, you know? So mm. even the people depicted in those have a whole range of reasons why they make the decisions that they do. Yeah. And so one of the reasons of what I'm hoping to do with Lowborn is reach those people and engender some empathy and some yeah. inter- understanding. Yeah, well, I certainly had jokes in the past. <laughs> no, I have. I've, 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 I've oh, stopped, right, I thought you just meant in general. No, 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 I've never, I've <laughs> jokes, that they're normally just sentences with a lot of hope. <laughs> but it's, uh, no, I've had a couple, you know, which I look back now years, years ago, but I still go, now I realise what that joke was and I realise what that, that stereotype that it involved with and I realise that, it, you know, in jokes that I don't feel in any way proud of performing, you mm. know, there was, and that bit of, you know, just having to every now and again go, oh, yep. That was a mistake, and that mm. was something where you just thought it was a clever joke, and not and not and the, the initial motivation is not even to attack a group. It's just that the the, the cliche that you're using fits yeah. in uh. with the punchline, and then you go, "Oh yeah, I don't realise what I'm playing with here, but actually, I am playing with stereotypes and things which are." And I'm sure that yeah. happened again. I'm sure there'll be a point I look back at some of the shows that I've done, and I'll continue to go, "Oh fuck, there," you know, and that that. Um, <laughs> But I think you know it was so, it's so prevalent now, and I think that 
you know, as you were saying, a lot of these kind of TV shows, the the ones that previously had the spaces where, you know, World in Action was and First Tuesday and all of those different shows are now taken up with, you know, there's 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 so much reality television that there's very little space for reality on television. Mm. And that, that seems to be kind of... Um, the um, that was one of the interesting terms you used in in this book, which was because I, I at one point it reminded me of, of when the film I Daniel Blake came out, and uh, Toby Young, beautifully described by Martin Rousen as Edible Car Crash, Toby Young, <laughs> uh, so, said this it basically seemed to sum up go yeah, but there's something about this which doesn't really ring true. Now, even oh, though just... they spent a very <laughs> long time, it's it's uh, Paul's. It's not Paul McCafferty. I'm trying to remember the name of, of the screenwriter who does a lot of work with with Ken Ken Loach, who who wrote it. Um, and yeah, they they spent a very long time interviewing people, going to Trussell Trust, going all these different places, and finding out what was going on. But for Toby Young, he could just go, "Oh yeah, but something about this doesn't really true." Now, if he if he really uh, cared about that then he might do a bit of research. But he could just deal with his spider instincts telling him that... Uh, he could just leave West London, couldn't he? Yeah, and that's... <laughs> and he, you talk about something called soft power in this, something yeah. which people are not aware of, those yeah. who have it very often. I mean, I think it's like, it's a... It's the idea that you move through the world understanding what you need to do. I sometimes call it like everyone else seems to know the dance moves. So I was at, in that case, I was at like a, a big gala dinner for a really good organisation, a good literacy organisation. And I was sitting next to um, a historian who came from a very rough background. And he said, you know, I, I learned I learned soft power. So not like how to do your job really well, not how to represent yourself well while you're doing your job, but all the other little sort of motions and movements and uh, you know, sort of uh, the little touches that help you fit in or not, that make you feel that make you feel comfortable or not in an environment. Um, and I, I have never learned those. <laughs> and now I'm kind of not interested in it either, you know, because I almost like, even though I... I was kind of envy- like he had a great way about him. You know, I go to fancy parties and I just drink three glasses of wine really fast and then um, find someone who looks like fun and stick to them for the rest <laughs> yeah. of the night. I'm not, I'm not good at them. But, um, but and he, you know, I he- think that's how you're supposed to do them. Do you think? Thank you. I think you're supposed Thanks, to drink Becky. as much free booze as com- as makes up for the amount of time and travel it's taken you to get there. Thank you. That's my I'm, rule. Yeah. See, see, these are these are the sort of rules I needed to learn. Yeah. So, he had a way of just like moving you know he could move and he could chat to everyone and he didn't seem intimidated and he came from just the same background as me um so I find that that kind of fascinating that idea of soft power but that is something that if you are born middle class or upper class I think you just learn that sense of confidence that mm-hmm. the, the word entitlement's thrown around a lot but the idea that you are of course you should be at a dinner like that of course you should have a great job of course you should um you know speak out if you've got a story to tell those are things that you do not learn if you grow up right on the edges of society being told you're worth nothing yeah it must because, be horrible imposter syndrome i mean yeah of course and also i'm a woman so i have yeah, i have yeah. it doubly so um yeah it really is you know and it doesn't matter like you know i've published this is my third book i've written four now my next will be coming out with penguin random house after lowborn i won prizes for my first two yeah. doesn't matter i arrive everywhere just feeling like someone's gonna ask me to leave <laughs> you know immediately <laughs> or give me a tray of canapes and frankly sometimes i'd be much more comfortable carrying the canapes and sitting at the tables but mm. it's, it's interesting how prevalent that is I, i've i've spoken 
spoken to a Nobel Prize winner who still has that feeling, uh, Athene Donald, who's done some fantastic kind of work, women in STEM. And I remember once we were at some awards do, and she went, oh, I know why you're getting yours. But I said, no, I've only done some puns on the radio. I haven't really done <laughs> and put on some shows. You know, you've actually done this. But it's it's an intriguing thing. You know, her level of achievement to me is incredibly high. And, mm. and, and yet that doubt, that moment of waiting to be caught out. And, and the trouble is that we like to imagine that everyone feels that. And then you actually find out that many of the people who lead us, many of the people who we currently see in the cabinet and we mm. see both in, in US politics, Australian politics, they don't have any of that. I mean, that's part of the thing when you talk about, I suppose, to go beyond soft power, part of the thing with the education system of those who, you know, the majority of whom in power still... I mean, do you know what your book reminded me of? Seven Up. Do you remember the, the documentary Seven yeah, Up? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know yeah. if you ever... You, they might have done an Australian version because it's one that they did a few... It was basically... It was based on, you know, give me the child at the uh, age of seven, until the age of seven, and I'll show you the man, the kind of Jesuits thing. And it was a, a group of children, and they did a documentary about them when they're seven, where they wanted to be and that kind of thing. Then when they were 14, they, and they've continued this now they're up to i think the next one will be probably they'll be uh oh 56 they, i think they'll be 63 the next one oh, wow and, and what's fascinating is when you watch it so you can get it in a box set is there's you know three lovely boy children who go okay, and, and and then i hope to go to modeling college oxford and then with luck i will go into the city where i'll do this um and of course all those boys with i think one one exception but the boys who were very certain of where they're going to go from the, the position, that's where they went. Mm. And and the kid who was a little bit of a roustabout kid who was like, you know, he, he was briefly a jockey and that didn't work out and he's a cab driver. And everyone's narrative, you know, is kind of, I think with maybe two exceptions, is the narrative that will be expected from the point mm. of birth. That, you know, mm. you, 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 as you say, as I'm going to mention this in the beginning, you say, I'll give you the happy ending at the beginning. I'll explain it. Um, that to me is, I think it was Stephen Jay Gould once said about when it was some anniversary of Einstein. And he said, I don't think of Einstein and the greatness of his mind. I think about how many Einsteins there were toiling in the fields. Yeah. Yes. And, you know, and that, yeah. to me, is, is part of the fascination, which mm -hmm. is... Well, that's when people talk about... I'm, I am going slightly off topic here, so I do apologise. But when people talk about... Um, how we're having to cancel all of these people because you find out they've got dodgy backgrounds or done horrible things in the past and uh, now you can't even listen to Thriller without, you know, being lambasted and blah, blah, blah. oh, it's terrible, you know, you can't, you have to separate the artist from the axe, the artist from the axe. And, and I so often find myself thinking, but how many people out there, like, were better than Michael Jackson? We never heard them because we kept... Listening to Michael Jackson, or like how many, you know, like how many people out there are so are either of the same talent or more than the people that we keep forgiving for for the way that they've abused their power? Yeah, I mean, like what I what I say in the book is that, and I really mean this, like it's not false modesty. There wasn't anything particularly special about me. I was really lucky. I had some great teachers. I'm pretty smart. Like obviously, like I. It pains me to say it, but I'm a pretty decent writer, <laughs> um, you know. But basically, like, I was just lucky. It could have been any of the kids I grew up with who were smart and bright and clever and ambitious. And they did have, like, I, 
I use that I escaped hopelessness as like a sort a slightly tongue in cheek sort of sentence because actually there wasn't hopelessness. There was loads of hopes on those streets. They were just never attained, and they were never attained because your financial background dictates. Like I put in the book, literally how many fillings you have in your teeth. Mm. I have about fifteen, um, and I bet you that's not true of most of my middle class friends. And that's for a whole variety of reasons, but many of them are economic, you know. And the idea that like absolutely everything about your life is shaped by how much access you have to money and not just money but also cultural capital and a network again you know if you're talking about yeah. that that sort of you know that important thing where your aunt can get you into a work placement in such and such a place if you're completely cut off from like those networks of power i've got loads of fillings but how I many even, have you got how many I, you got, I must Rob? have I, it can't be far he, off he pretty much every single four interview has, uh, but <laughs> i reckon it's need... the sugared swan that did it okay. for me yes. that's the, uh, yeah, the there's a level where you end oh, up being the, the uh, you need your own memoir Robin. yes my terrible team <laughs> my struggle <laughs> <laughs> my terrible um the uh i oh, lovely thing just uh, totally sorry, pam airs the the wonderful poet pam airs who, who does write lovely um she became best known for uh, uh, a poem called i wish i'd looked after my teeth i don't know if you remember that and i met her last year and the first thing she ever I have terrible toothache. I went, oh, you're so authentic. The fact that 40 years on, it touched you. Went, what you oh, God, I wrote that poem. Wonderful. Um, the, um, w- one of the things you write about when you return to one of, one of your schools is, again, something which you would hope would not be required in a nation that is apparently this rich and yet also at the same time, the, you know, the government will continue to say how poor we're. Poverty proofing in schools. Yes. Yeah, an amazing, amazing scheme set up in the northeast of England. It hasn't been rolled out everywhere yet because it has to be adopted by local authorities. Um, but I don't understand why not. Um, I know some teachers in London are trying to pioneer it now because that's a really good example of where you've got fairly well-off kids uh, going to school with much poorer kids. And the idea is that they come in and they audit the school to look at it from the perspective of the poorest child. So it's things like, can they afford the bus fares to school trips? Um is the school uniform genuinely inclusive or are there ways that they might be differentiated? Um, so, for instance, at that school, they realised that the water bottles were causing the poorer kids to feel really ashamed because their parents couldn't afford the really expensive water bottles. So they just made it standard across the school. Um, it's things like, um, you know, being able to afford crisps and a juice after swimming. Like, you just stop it for everyone if they can't. Not asking kids what they did at the summer during their summer holidays because for a lot of kids, they didn't do anything but stay at home with their mum and miss their school dinners um, and so um, so it's a really amazing idea that trying to tackle that sort of shame in young children from a really early age and also trying to I hope like stop those divisions between better off kids and poorer kids so that better off kids are constantly like aware of their privilege from that age and are constantly sort of making poorer kids pay or making them feel uncomfortable because of that. Mm. Um, so yeah, I mean, it should be rolled out everywhere. It's a great scheme. I think it's been really successful there, especially because that's a very, very deprived school. Um, and they've, they've you know, it doesn't cost a lot, but I think it's been really successful in terms of helping their poorer students feel more part of the school and, and less um, picked on, you know. Um, I've, I've I've read it in the wrong order because I've just uh, read Tony Hogan uh, bought an ice cream float and, and before he <laughs> stole my ma. Now that obviously now having read Lowborn first means that I can see the you know how much of that in terms of the balance of of autobiography and the other world. I mean when, when you look back now, yeah, you know, in terms of what you were working out, it reminded in some ways it reminded me of Hannah Gadsby's Nanette. 
where she talks about... Have you seen it? No, no. She, she talks about why she's going to stop doing stand-up, but unfortunately it's been such a successful show that she's now continuing to do stand-up and become an international star. <laughs> and uh, Which is not what happened to me when I stopped doing stand-up. No one was interested. No one bothered coming back. But it was... Um, and she talks about the point that, that sometimes... The, I think disingenuous is the wrong word, but you do a joke and you take bits of your life and you turn them into a joke, but sometimes you remove the final detail. Mm-hmm. The detail, which is actually the bit that stops it being a joke. The fact that mm-hmm. you've made it look like fun, but actually it wasn't fun. There's a final. Mm-hmm. You've you've seen it, haven't yeah, you? Yeah. And I, I won't spoil it for those of you who I really recommend anyone who hasn't seen it to to, to watch it. It's, it's it's a fantastic piece of work. Um, and I wondered how, when you felt, going back to Lowbourne and then sometimes maybe wondering about Tony Hogan, are the bits where you think, ah, oh, yeah, that in some ways when I was making this fictional story of my life, sometimes there were edges that were made maybe shaved off. Or there were moments which can almost be, you know, in some ways more palatable because they're in in this form that you've taken your life. Oh, my God. This is like a really amazing therapy session. (laughs) (laughs) That also helps me publicize my book. So thank you. Um, Yeah, totally. I mean, I didn't know I was doing it at the time. So I wrote um, I wrote it 10 years ago now. I wrote it in Vietnam in a sabbatical for my NGO job. I wrote it in six months. I had no idea what I was doing. I often say that I just I literally Googled, how do you write a novel? And then I sat in Vietnam for six months and I wrote a novel. And that was it. But it, it came out of me like, like you know, the kid was like drumming its its little fists on my back. And the reason for that is because I had all the stuff that I really needed to understand but didn't know how to. But yeah, I mean, I was very conscious of of making it lighter and gentler and brighter. And that was partly because I just didn't want to go to the really painful parts for myself. Um, and so I guess I did half the job with Tony Hogan, which is that I contained it and I ordered it and I understood things a little bit better and often did a bit of smoke, fictional smoke and mirrors where I lightened things and made things a bit easier for myself. And then 10 years later, because um, I leave no jobs unfinished, but sometimes I wait 10 years to finish them. <laughs> I, um, I I decided to write Lowborn, which really looks at like the 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 real, you know, some people are saying it's like the, the sort of story behind the story, which is like the, the harder, realer, more, more intimate parts. But again, that's because, um, you know, I'm in a better position to write this book now. You know, I've got two books behind me. Um, I totally understand now that you can stop being published at any time for any reason. So I'm not terribly afraid of like it being a big success or a big flop. So I was just able to write something that felt really honest and really compelling for me. There's... Sometimes reading the bits when you're when you're four, when you're six, and the, you know the, the occasions of the things that you had to uh, not merely witness but be part of. The uh, and I, as I was reading, I could think. So what? What would you say to people who are reading it in a comfortable position? Who, as you get to those moments and you feel you want to step into the book, you wish you could. You wish you could step in and you could say something and you could. What should we be doing? What what do you feel? You know that the, the, those people in a position that might be able to do something or try. What 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 is the way that we can become active to? I mean, it, you know, in, put down your book and go outside and look at the streets around you. You know, in London, you're looking at kids who don't have enough food in the next street from you, especially in like the sort of bigger cities. Um, child poverty is rife, you know. Um, so I think like look at how you use your privilege and make sure you use it for, for the best possible, whether that's a platform you have or whether it's your position at a company or whether it's your expendable money or skills that you have. Look at the resources that you have that other people 
or have not been lucky enough to have and look at how you can use them to shape and change something. Um, and I get that, like, obviously, like, the whole world is falling apart and we're just toasting marshmallows on the bonfire of Britain at the moment. <laughs> but um, but I really think that what I tend to say for people who feel overwhelmed about what they can do is find a local project that you feel um, personally really connected to and give them as much support as you possibly can and think about how much you can offer them and then look at campaigning organisations that campaign and lobby to change legislation and, uh, to, and change policy to try and uh, change those structural problems Kerry thank you very much that's um, would you like to Beck when you uh, offer you a, a solo or? I, <laughs> yeah <laughs> I, I have no like no I just thought that was a beautiful way to finish this um, this interview um, or are you passing to me to plug my own stuff no don't worry oh, no, I won't <laughs> do. I've told you that story about that. that I told you the time that I was on some daytime TV show where the bloke next to me he basically lost his best friend who'd been murdered by you know government <laughs> stooges blah 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 and he told this tremendously passionate story and then Jeremy Vine just turned to me and went Robin you've got a book out so I know that that's not the rules no I um, no no, I, ju- I don't think I had anything to add other than to listen, which I think <laughs> I feel like is the big lesson from from this is that we need to start listening more. Mm. Um, and can I could I also mention actually I'm doing loads of Lowborn events. I'm not going to plug them, I promise. No, you can. I no, am. no, you, you should. Can. Yeah. Check out my website. They're on the website. Um, but um, I'm also doing collections for beauty banks for um, for for sort of hygiene poverty, so deodorants, uh, makeup, like perfume, things that shampoo, conditioner, things that like little extras that you wouldn't necessarily buy if you're really, really short of money. And also for the Redbox project, which collect tampons and sanitary towels for uh, girls who are experiencing period poverty. So are missing school because they cannot afford sanitary protection once a month. So at every gig, if you've got any of that stuff lying around, bring it around. I'll put it in my big sack and then I'll, I'll take it to those projects. Do you have um, uh, social media or websites for those things? Because those are great. Um, so uh, the Redbox project is at Redbox project, and if you type in uh, beauty beauty boxes, then you should be able to find uh, beauty boxes. I'm not sure. There's no way. Well, Can I do you it know to what? We'll, we'll, what what happens is <laughs> Pop it but, in but the by notes. the time this goes out, we'll have found the correct. Thank um, you. And yeah. so, so I was going to. God bless this not being a live show. You, Thank you. You have, <laughs> just, you have just reminded me of something that always sticks with me, and I just wonder if it's worth mentioning for any listeners. But it was um, it was something that someone had tweeted, and I have to remind myself of all this all the time. Um, they said they were. This has always stuck with them. They were in a Waitrose, and there was a homeless man in the waitress looking at the sandwiches and a woman walked up to him and obviously he'd been collecting change and stuff outside and a woman came up to him and she said what are you doing why are you why are you here in waitrose why aren't you at tesco or something or aldi or little you could get so much more for your money there you know you could buy a whole loaf of bread and all the stuff you could you could eat sandwiches for the week for the money that you've got why are you in here and she sort of lambasted him and the person said and he just looked up with like these eyes full of sorrow and just said I just wanted something nice. Mm. And don't we all, don't we all, like no one should be denied the uh, the ability to just have something nice because sometimes, and especially for people in that position, life's a bit shit. Mm. And that's when you most need something that's a bit nice. That's when you want a good sandwich. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, so, um, so yeah, that beauty bank boxing is a lovely thing because those little things make a huge difference, like just... 
just to feel nice and fresh and clean or, you know, to, for your hair to smell good. That, like, gives you a confidence yeah, that is completely Yeah, who wants to go to you with dirty hair, Absolutely. you know, not wearing deodorant. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's funny, isn't it, when people say things like, well, I, they didn't look very homeless to me. You know, that kind of different mm. ways that people will go. cheeks. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, me- I remember when, like when we were doing twist. one of the Nine Lessons shows uh, up near Hoban and uh, Trent, our producer, who's off today because he's, he's ill, but um, he, uh, it was a cold day and he walked past someone who was on the street and he said, oh, I'm just going to the coffee shop. Do you want me to get you a coffee? And he went and got him a coffee and I think someone else as well. And, and then when he came back, he said the bloke was almost in tears. He said, I didn't think you'd come back. You just mm. thought it was something you said, you know, and that's uh, um, so this is the book that I'm mainly going to be buying for people this year. Thank you, Low Robin. Born. Um, it's mm. great, it really is. Uh, um, uh, I mentioned a couple other things just uh, Hastings Furniture, but there'll be another one in if, if you're down on the south coast because I was thinking about the fact you talked quite often about the times that you, you know, you, you had somewhere to live, but it had no furniture, or it had yeah. really awful things from skips filled with you know, all manner of bugs and stuff. So, so Hastings Furniture is a charity that I've done an event with Mark Thomas and various others, which is for, for that particular kind of area of the coast, which gets uh, finds furniture and cooking utensils and stuff. And we should probably mention the Trussell Trust trust as well uh, but also, look up all of it we'll put loads of links under this sorry Karen okay so I was just going to say also as well as the Trussell Trust the independent food bank map which shows you independent food banks because not everyone wants to go for a referral uh, through an agency to get to a Trussell Trust food bank they do great work but sometimes they just need to go in and literally get some food without going for that referral brilliant look under these uh, we'll, we'll keep them under all the uh, uh, podcasts uh, for the time being but uh, we'll, we'll, we'll start this week so uh, have a look uh, thanks very much to Beck Hill, who can be found at uh, at Beck Hill Comedian uh, on Twitter, and uh, also at the Soho Theatre, not Soho Theatre, at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. Mm-hmm. But I've now said so many times that you're at the Soho Theatre that I feel the Soho Theatre must be under an enormous amount of pressure to definitely right. program your next show. Yeah, I think everyone before. listening should camp start start tweeting the Soho Theatre and say, "When is this going to be?" This? Oh, I'm really annoyed yeah. about this. I'm just going to see something awful instead. Um, oh, I'm at Soho Theatre actually in July. Go and see something awful. <laughs> Instead, so, uh, so I, that, that, that's the uh, I'm off on tour with uh, with Brian Cox, all, all, all the proper like kind of weird world tour, and then I'll be the when I get back, I'm going to be at the Soho Theatre. Uh, go to what's the best website for people to find out the events you're going to be doing, Kerry? Uh, KerryHudson.co.uk. So go there, find out, uh, and buy Lowborn. And um, thanks very much for listening. Bye bye. Thank you very much for listening and the links to all those charities that Robin Kerry and Beck have just mentioned you'll find on the Book Shambles page if you go to the page for if you go to the bit of the Book Shambles section of that this is very convoluted way of explaining it go to the Cosmic Shambles website go to Book Shambles go to the episode for Kerry and you'll find all of the links there thanks to our Patreon supporters as per usual Check out CosmicShambles.com for all our latest events and blogs and videos and everything else. We will be back next week with a brand new episode. Till then, bye. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robbins' Book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions.